you've been walking with the teacher in Ecclesiastes through a number of quests where you've been looking, will this quest or another satisfy? And this morning as we look at money, the teacher is going to give us a very clear response that it is only in turning to the God who gives that you will ever be satisfied with your money. But before we talk about uh, what the teacher has to share with us, I wanted to reflect uh, some studies that have come out from Pew Research on what money is being used for. So three generations for you to consider. First, the Gen Xers. The Gen Xers are those who were born in the 60s to the late mid-80s. And uh, Pew, as they were studying Gen Xers and how Gen Xers use money, started to notice that Gen Xers are really drawn towards security, sort of establishment, uh, purchasing a home, paying off a home, having retirement, having things set for the long haul. Uh, The study I found showed that of Gen Xers, those born in this generation, about 82% of them currently own a home. About 79% of them are actively retiring or actively preparing for retirement. And then the crazy stat that got me was that 55% of Gen Xers own more than one property. So there's this sense with Gen Xers where it's kind of a vision and it makes sense. Like if we have money, then we can buy a house, uh, maybe a nice car, even we can provide for our kids. And then when the end of our work comes, we'll be settled, we'll be happy, we'll be satisfied. Millennials are notoriously different. I see a lot of wonderful millennials here this morning. I myself am a millennial. Uh, That's born in the mid-80s to the late 90s. And millennials pride themselves in these studies that they don't care about money like the Gen Xers do, like the older generations do. In fact, millennials said that uh, 64% of millennials said they'd rather make $40,000 a year at a job they really enjoy than $100,000 a year at a job that they don't enjoy. This is sort of our purity and our integrity, right? We like, we like purpose. We like things like justice and value. But the, uh, the hidden truth of millennials is that we also like something else, and it's experiences. So in all of these studies that have been coming out about how millennials are spending their money, uh, they're just realizing almost more than any other generation, millennials love authentic experiences, right? We, we love going to artisanal baking classes, right? We love spending extra money to get a really good cup of coffee, right? And so for millennials, it's maybe not so much a big, fancy, high-paying job or a second home, but boy, do we like spending money on experiences. And what we're looking for, this sort of hunger, this craving inside, is that we might be able to touch, to somehow access with our money that authentic experience, that authentic experience. Final study for you is the next generation coming after us millennials, the Gen Z. These are people born in the early 2000s to the present. And what they're finding is that Gen Z actually are different, again, from millennials. Uh, When asked in this big survey, large number of Gen Zers, what they thought would make them most happy in life, the largest response, 80% of them, said that if they were rich, they would be happy. Interestingly, the second most popular response was Gen Zers saying that if they were famous, they thought they might be happy, about 50% of them. So so what we're finding here is the shift with money, right? And the point is not uh, that all of us fit stereotypes or 
that any generation is bad. The point is that all of us are using our money to try to satisfy some craving or value or desire deep down. And so the question for you this morning as we engage the teacher is, what is that, that craving that you're most likely to try to fill with money? What is it that money most allures you with, the possibility, the enticement? So turn with me to our passage. I'd love to hear what the teacher has to say. Can money ever actually satisfy those desires? Can money actually ever fill us? If you look with me at our passage in your bulletin or in your Bibles, Ecclesiastes 5, look with me at verse 10. The teacher gives us a resounding answer to the question, will we be satisfied with money? It says in verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. So, so what is it that the teacher's getting at? He, he's using almost this sense with the word love, that, that hunger, those longings, that cravings inside. If you're hungry for money, money never actually satisfies what you're hungry for. Uh, there's studies that come out frequently of millionaires, those with tons of wealth, and they're all summarized, captured by John Rockefeller, who was the uh, well-known first billionaire of America. He made tons of money on the steel industry in the 20th century. Some say he was the richest man in modern history. And a reporter one day asked him, how much money will be enough? To which he replied, just a little bit more, right? This, this is what the teacher is getting at. When you love money, when you hunger for money, money is never going to satisfy. So the teacher is going to give us three reasons to back up their case on why money is not going to fill that hunger, that longing inside. The first reason happens in verse 11. Read with me. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The first reason the teacher gives us why money won't satisfy is this. The stomach is never truly full. Just sit with this picture for a minute. As you look at verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. What the teacher's saying is that as you eat food, when you eat too much food, instead of filling you more somehow, it actually expands your stomach, right? The more food you eat, the more hungry you actually become. It's just this endless cycle. And so similarly with money, the more money we start to have, the more money we start to want. Uh, the next image that the teacher uses in verse 12 is that of trying to sleep on a full stomach, right? That the laborer, the person who's working, is able to sleep because they're tired, no matter if they have a lot or a little. The rich, those with lots of money, almost get too full. It's like the stomach, as you try to sleep, is distracting. You've almost had too much to eat. There's one more verse at the end of our passage, chapter 6, verse 7. If you flip to the back there, where the teacher is going to bring up this sort of picture of a stomach and food again. Chapter 6, verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. I really love this picture because it's almost like the teacher is envisioning someone who's been working 
a field, maybe even working a garden, right? They've been working all day, they're sweating, they're laboring, they're gathering up all this produce. And then what is it that they're working for? They're working so that they can eat. This is great. The gatherer, the worker gathers all that they have, they sit down, they prepare a meal, but there's this devastating reality that happens the next morning, right? They're hungry again. Have you ever had a, like a feast, a truly extravagant meal that has multiple courses, the food tastes amazing, you're having a great time? Inevitably, no matter how full you got the night before, no matter how rich and abundant the food was that went into your stomach, by the next morning you're hungry again, right? The next morning you wake up and I unfortunately often tend to find that I'm like eating cereal or something like that, right? That it's like you have this rich, abundant food and yet the next morning you're just trying to curb your appetite with a little bit of cereal to get you through the morning. I think this is what the teacher is getting at when it comes to this pursuit, this search for money. The reality is our stomach never fills up. Money is not a food that ever satisfies Let's look at the second reason the teacher gives us why money never satisfies. If you go with me to verse 13, chapter 5, verse 13. The teacher is going to give us a story at this point. So I'll read this out and then we'll sort of track out what the story is. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. What's the teacher getting at here? It's almost like the teacher is looking out and he sees that there's a person who's worked really hard in business. But if you track with the story the teacher's telling, these riches are being accumulated. Someone's getting promotions. They're... uh, They're getting more money for the job that they're doing. They're getting ahead. They're being successful. But as they're advancing, harm is taking place. It's kind of ambiguous what that harm is. Maybe this person is working really late and is just utterly exhausted. Their body's totally worn out. Maybe this person is ruining relationships because they're just pushing so hard at work. They're pushing so hard to be successful. Maybe there's almost a sense in which maybe the money's being made in some sort of unethical way, like uh, money's being accumulated, but it's not exactly good business practices that this person is using. And so as the harm is accumulating, all of a sudden in this crashing moment, verse 14, the riches are lost in a bad venture. It's like the person's been working their whole life to build up all this money, and then something happens. The market turns. Recession comes. The housing market crashes. And the next thing this person knows Everything is gone. But as if this isn't enough, the teacher, who's a really good storyteller, sort of twists the knife at this point. This person is a father, and they have a son. And now both the father and the son are standing there at the end of this person's life, and their hands are empty, right? They've got nothing in their hands. And the teacher then says this really powerful summary that just as we came naked into the world, so we will return to the grave with nothing, right? What the teacher's trying to get us to see is that the money you have, you will not take with you, right? When you die, 
there's nothing that you can actually take with you beyond the grave. It's almost like the teacher is giving us this call to look up, to look up past uh, vacations this summer, to look up past the next promotion, to look up and see that at the end of your life, there actually won't be any money or possessions or things that you can hold on to. Your hands are going to be empty. I've been wrestling with this story from the teacher. Uh, My wife and I, over this past year, uh, have been wrestling with her job that uh, she's been working as a mental health therapist, and the nature of the practice she's in has just been doing sort of damage to her soul. It's just one of those jobs that it's sort of taken a beating. And as we were exploring, discerning, questioning, we again and again found ourselves sort of offering this justification response to why she should stay, that it would be really hard to go down an income from what we currently have, right? It's not like we have lots of money, uh, but it's going to be too costly, we almost said, for us to have less money than the pain, the damage, the sort of like rending of her soul that's been taking place with work. As I've been wrestling with this passage, and as we've been wrestling with this this last year, the question that came back to us again and again and again is, is it possible that we're chasing money and harming our eternal souls? Is it possible that the job she's working is doing more damage than any amount of income or goods could provide in response? So in just the last couple of months, my wife has been able to leave this job Things have gone much better. And that doesn't mean that every job that's hard should be left. But the teacher's trying to get us to wrestle with this eternal perspective. Will you take any of your money with you when you die? Third reason the teacher offers us that money won't satisfy. Look with me at chapter 6. I'm going to jump ahead to verse 1. There's one final story that the teacher offers. Uh, I'll just read this out. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. Okay, so what's happening here? The teacher sees a person, let's even say you, perhaps, Uh, As a person, everything you've ever wanted comes about. Let's say it's a job that pays a solid income, right? Maybe it's a job that has health insurance. Can you imagine a job with health insurance? Uh, It's a job that allows you to buy a house, to buy a car. In fact, those clothes you've been looking at, you're able to purchase. In fact, maybe it's even endless Chipotle for a year, right? That would certainly be all my heart's desires. So so you have everything you've ever wanted. The teacher sees this person who's received all the wealth, all the possessions they could ever want, and yet the vanity, the tragedy, is that when they receive them, they can't actually enjoy the things that money has given them. This is the teacher's third reason why money will never satisfy. It's possible that you get everything you want with money, and it still won't satisfy your soul. Uh, I, probably like many of you, have found myself on sort of slow afternoons, particularly for traveling in a hotel room, watching HGTV. Are there any other uh, guilty confessions to be made here this morning? Uh, and as, as my wife and I have sort of 
seen various shows on HGTV, it's kind of interesting that they all follow the same basic formula, right? You, you come across a couple or a person or a family, and they start with this home or apartment or whatever it is. It's kind of a mess, right? And the show begins with, like, how could anyone ever live with four bedrooms, right? Like, that's just unbelievable that they have to make it in this condition. And then as they're wrestling with the home that they have, uh, there's a better home. There's a more home or there's a fixed up home that could be theirs. And you go through a lot of commercial breaks and you're really intrigued and there's sort of this growing sense of wonder you have as you watch the show. Like how good is that house going to be when they finally get it? And, And you start anticipating and then the moment comes when the couple receives it, their brand new home, everything they ever wanted. And they always show the couple sort of sitting there, smiling, holding each other, happy with their new home. Have you ever wondered how long that couple stays satisfied with the new house they've just gotten? Like, you think after a week, the house is totally blown up, like toys are everywhere, the cupboards, cupboards are already full, and they start wondering, you know, like, maybe we should get a new place. It, even if it's not a week, what if it's a month? What if it's two years, five years? I mean, I get a phone, and by next September, I'm like, oh, I think there's a better phone. I think there could be a new phone that I might need. Are we ever truly satisfied with the things that we have? Or do they constantly, consistently get replaced by the next thing that can make us happy. What the teacher wants us to wrestle with is is sort of the meaninglessness, the vanity that our things don't fill us up. In fact, it's going to give a really strong picture. Every time I read it, it sort of makes me wince. And I think that's the point. If you look with me at chapter 6, verse 5, sorry, verse 3, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his life are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it hasn't seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though this wealthy man should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. I mean, this is devastating, right? This is, this is almost terrible to say something so nasty. And yet the teacher's point sort of just stands ringing there. What good does it do to live 100 years if every time you get a paycheck increase, every time you consume a new experience, every time you buy a new car, a new house, anything. You find yourself just looking for the next one, hoping for the next one, craving for something more. I mean, are we really better off living our whole lives chasing things if we cannot find satisfaction in what we already have? The teacher's gonna turn us here. It's gonna turn us to God. This is a very important turn. And uh, if you look with me back at chapter five, There's this one passage, it's just two verses, where the the teacher of Ecclesiastes looks up and gives us hope. And this is one of the few sort of hopeful passages in Ecclesiastes, and so it's really important as insight, as guidance 
for the teacher in how we might live with all of these quests, all of these pursuits around us. Look with me at verse 18. Behold what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. What is it that the teacher is inviting us to do? Inviting us to turn from money as this endless craving that can never be satisfied and turn instead to God who gives, right? The point of the teacher here is that God, instead of consuming, is one who gives. He sort of gives abundantly, actually, when you think about it. Uh, God gives in creation. The teacher highlights the food and the drink, the material, the abundance of material goods that creation has to offer us, the beauty and mystery and wonder of creation, right? As you look around the world, as you look out at Lake Michigan, there's just so much abundance there for you. There's so much abundance to satisfy your delights. God also gives to us personally. He gives us life itself. He gives us our own being, our personalities, our abilities, our giftings. When you look at what the teacher is saying, he sort of twice mentions this phrase that God has given us our lot. There's almost this image that the teacher's using where God is sort of the overseer of all of creation. And in each portion, he sort of carved out a space for each of us. This is your lot. This is your space to work, to cultivate, to serve. And what the teacher's telling us is that rather than getting obsessed with what size my lot is, with how big my lot is, or maybe how small my lot is, the teacher's inviting us to receive the lot that God has given us. I think when you sort of take a step back and hear what the teacher's inviting us to to see, you realize that the teacher is almost sort of gazing into the future when it comes to the God who gives and is glimpsing the abundance and the glory of what is coming in Jesus Christ. The teacher doesn't quite see it, sort of is talking about it vaguely, but there, waiting for the teacher in the future is going to be God not only giving us abundance in creation, not only giving us abundance in our own personal lot, but God is actually going to come and give the abundance of himself. Jesus actually becomes the greatest sign of God's own giving, right? If God would not hold back his only son, if God would not hold back himself, but would come in Jesus Christ, would come and actually offer himself through his death and resurrection, then what is there that God would not give us? What need is there that God could not satisfy? I mean, to walk through even those generational needs we started with, for the Gen Xer who's looking for security, is not Jesus Christ the greatest gift of security, an eternal vision of investment and stability and joy for a Gen Xer to receive? Is not God in Jesus Christ the greatest gift of purpose, of justice, of authentic human existence that the millennial can embrace, can look for? Did not God in Jesus Christ give himself in 
humility and sacrifice so that Gen Zers, rather than chasing products, can actually receive the connection and community of his church. I mean, in Jesus, God has given us everything we possibly need to be satisfied. And so when you find Jesus teaching about money, it's almost like he's flipped the world's message on its head, right? Jesus is going to say things like, look at the birds. They're doing fine, right? Our chirping bird. I don't know. It's an easy reference. <laughs> chirping bird is it's being taken care of. And so similarly, when it comes to your money, how could God not take care of you? Jesus is going to say things like, why store up possessions on earth when there's an eternal life for you to be embracing now? Jesus is also going to say, why try to serve the master of money, right? Why try to fill up your stomach, to fill up your heart with the things that money can provide when the God of the universe, the God of creation, the God of your life has offered everything to you in Jesus Christ? To close, I want to just give a few final practical suggestions. This is going to be pretty brief, but when it comes to money, money is so powerful, We have such a struggle in our hearts to resist money. These three practical thoughts based on what the teacher is saying here can give us some next step direction. The first practical thought is this. We can turn to the God who gives by practicing gratitude. Okay, so we can kind of walk with Jesus. We can turn to the God who gives by practicing gratitude. Actually, just this last week, I got a great chance to try this out, to practice what I'm preaching. Uh, Wednesday was a tough day. I just had a lot going on. We had friends from out of town. My wife and I had been arguing the night before. It was just, just a, one of those Wednesdays. And as I went into work, sort of disgruntled, unquieted in my spirit, I had a chance as I was praying, as I was thinking about this sermon, to just begin by naming what it is that I actually have, right? Naming this relationship that I have with my wife that is wonderful. Naming the job that I'm able to work. Naming the home, the clothes, the income that God has given. And once I started naming what I had, immediately I started to be able to see, well, of course, it is God who's given this, right? God God has taken care of me through my childhood. God has cared for my every need. Who am I to get obsessed, distracted, disappointed, dispirited with my money when God is the God who gives? So maybe for you this week, at some point, maybe even today, it would be great to list what it is that you have and who it is that's given to you. Another practical thought around money is that we can turn to the God who gives by practicing simplicity. I think this, in some ways, is the heart of Jesus's invitation to us. It's funny that in our culture today, there's actually a lot of sort of movements going around with simplicity. Maybe you've heard about the capsule wardrobe movement, or maybe You've watched on Netflix, The Art of Tidying Up, right? Where you're like minimizing all your stuff. That's great. I think the joy of simplicity for the Christian, though, is that we actually can live simple, practical, present lives because it's God who's given us everything that we have, right? It's like when you turn to the cross, you actually start to feel this release in yourself, this release of your clothes, this release of your possessions. You can practice simplicity with joy because God has given us everything we need in Jesus. Finally, just a final thought, and this is maybe the biggest one. We can turn to the God who gives by giving ourselves. It's giving our time, certainly. It's giving in relationships, but one of the best ways to break the stronghold of money is to give 
our own money away. It's like the money that we have, whether it's a small, small amount of money, whether you're a student who's working a part-time job, or whether it's a very large lot, the joy that can start to fill our hearts is when we release that money. It's almost like the great cry of resistance to the power of money today. It's the great stand you can make. By giving your money away, you create space in your lot for God to, to continue to satisfy and to give. So Emmanuel, when it comes to the pursuit of money, my prayer for you is that with all of the pressures around you, with all of the cravings that money seems to say it can satisfy, may you turn to the God who has given you everything in Jesus Christ and find that only in him can you truly be satisfied. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.